How about we open our Bibles to the book of Matthew? Good morning, good morning. If you guys are new here, welcome. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here. And uh, can you guys all stand with me as we read Scripture? I'll give you the exact address. Here we go. You guys want the exact address because you guys are on top of it. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 50. If you guys don't have Bibles, I'm sure we have some ushers that would love to get your Bible. Just raise your hand. They'll get it to you. Um, if not, it'll be up on the screen. Matthew 27 45 begins like this. <clears throat> now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Uh, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and then yielded up his spirit. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, God, we ask you right now that you just speak to our hearts from your word. Uh, shape us, remake us, God. I pray that you would help correct us, especially in areas that maybe we have misconceptions, misperceptions about who you are. Reawaken us, God, especially if at one point in our life, uh, our souls were more alive to you than they are right now. God, give us a hunger for you that maybe we've never had before. Just do what only you alone can do. So I uh, got to pray that the words that I speak would be synced up with what you want to have been spoken here this morning. So we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? Uh, so we've been in a series now in this season of what we call Lent, uh, prepping our hearts, getting ready for Easter, which, by the way, is literally four weeks away. So what I want you to be thinking about, in fact, what I want to do right now real quick, I, I, I want to pray one more quick time. Um, I want you to be thinking about who God wants you to bring to church. Uh, Easter. There's two times out of the year that people will come to church more so than ever in our culture if if they're asked. Um, it's obviously Christmas and Easter. Uh, so we will be having two services on Easter Sunday. Um, we'll give you more information in the weeks to come. Um, but there'll be many, you know, two options to choose from. Uh, it should be a really great celebration time. But at the same time, I think it becomes even more of a celebration when we kind of all participate and think about and pray about who are people in our lives right now. Each one of you guys have people in your lives that are either far from God or maybe asking questions about who God is and what Jesus is all about. Um, and you are that conduit. You are the one that God has like appointed. Um, so if you think of it this way, you have you have a call, you have an appointment from God to be an ambassador for the gospel. And you don't have to know all the classical theological things to say. All you can just simply do is just be like, hey, what do you doing Easter Sunday. Come to church with me. I'm going to come swing by and pick you up, and we're going to hang out together. So you can hijack them and bring them in, but um, hopefully in a loving way. But uh, it should be a really good time. But that's four weeks away. So we've been in a series looking at the last final words of Jesus on the cross prior to his death and ultimately his resurrection. So today we're looking at this little phrase, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. What does that mean? So real quick, I want to just give a handful of quick observations that really kind of stand out to me that I think are worth uh, just thinking about. Number one, uh, that there was darkness over the land. Like that's kind of a big E on the eye chart right there. Verse 45, there's darkness all throughout the land. Again, why 
I'm not going to necessarily go into all the details why. It's just simply a little detail that the writer Matthew, as well as Mark, tells us that there was darkness. There was darkness. So whatever it is that was happening was so dramatic. It was so intense that uh, it was described as darkness. Second thing that we see is that Jesus was actually quoting Psalm 22. This is another really important thing to just note. Jesus isn't just simply framing these words in the moment, on the spot, um, freestyling. Jesus literally is linking every single thing that he's doing up into this point to the ancient historic storyline of the Bible. Like, that's kind of cool. In fact, there's actually two other occasions, which I'm not going to necessarily reference, uh, in this storyline right here that are actually direct quotes from uh, the Psalm, Psalm 22 to be precise. And the third thing is that we see that Jesus was actually misunderstood. So if you play out the last, uh, the last few verses that, are, that we read, verse 47, 48, uh, people are hearing Jesus cry on the cross, and they're kind of like interpreting it in, in through their own lens. They're like, oh, he's calling out to Elijah, um, because they made the connection, the correlation between Eli, Eli, oh, maybe he's calling out Elijah. Um, others acted upon that, like, great, let's go get a sponge, put on a reed, fill it with vinegar. And uh, some some scholars actually believe that what was happening right there was not necessarily people being helpful, was actually even more insult to injury. Like some in the ancient world, hygiene was actually taken care of by using a sponge on one's private places after they used the restroom. They would use a sponge with vinegar on it. So if this is the case, then what was happening in this very moment, in this moment of Jesus' incredible anguish, someone's grabbing a sponge filled with feces and putting vinegar on it and then giving it to Jesus saying, here, let this satiate you. It was, it was gnarly what was happening here right now. And these are all the things that are kind of playing out in Jesus' life that are being recorded for us uh, in, in by the sacred writers. Quick observations. Uh, but one thing that really struck me about the failure to really understand what Jesus was doing is a lot of times people, they don't understand our anguish or the pain that someone is going through. And this was the same way with Jesus. Jesus is in the throes of incredible anguish. And yet, even in the midst of that, people are like, I have no idea what's going on. And they're falsely interpreting. Has that ever happened to you? Or maybe something horrible is happening to you in your life. And there's you're not even able to articulate the, the depth of the pain. And someone comes up out of nowhere, they're like, well, it's all this, and it's all that. This is what you're going through. And totally missing the big point. That's, that can add even more pain and anguish to your soul. Because now, not only do you have this trauma of what you're dealing with, but you're also dealing with other people misinterpreting the trauma that you're dealing with. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's exactly what's happening with Jesus right here. So what I want to jump into now is just kind of asking the question, like, what what exactly is happening here? So the next slide, we'll kind of go through some of this. What exactly is happening right here? I think really the way I would describe it is that Jesus is harmonizing his voice with the psalmist in this cry of forsakenness or abandonment. Uh, it's what scholars would actually describe as the cry of dereliction, the cry of dereliction, where Jesus lifts up his voice, cries out with, with harmony, not only with the psalmist, but with all of humanity that has ever felt a sense of abandonment. Have you ever felt abandoned? Have you ever sensed that? It was interesting that sociologists and people that have studied these things, they've recognized that babies, when babies are first born, if they are not held in the first few months of their life, do you know that physiologically, physically, they are, something's not properly formed in them? Did you know that? So the older they get, so this is why it's so important. They say that especially when a baby is first born, they need, there's a desperation for a child to actually physically be held. Otherwise, there could be malformation that's happening. 
Uh, children, we, we know, uh, psychologists tell us that children experience incredible trauma, especially, for example, if a mom or dad, they divorce. They go through life wondering. I, that was kind of what happened with me. My, my, I was 12 years old. My parents divorced. And, you know, there were things that later on in life, 20, 30 years later, realizing, like, oh, man, these types of feelings that I have were probably input into me years ago when I was, like, 12 years old and was trying to make sense of, like, what happened And why did my parents get divorced? And why did my mom leave? And why did these circumstances take place? And why did we have to spend ever the weekend with mom and spend the rest of my life and my time with dad? Make sense of all of that. Uh, we, We know that children experience deep trauma in terms of trying to make sense of life and the and the and the abandonment and the question of like, what did I do to cause mom or to cause dad to leave? It all goes back upstream to this idea of abandonment, feeling now, as adults, it's interesting for us adults, like, we live our lives desperately trying to dodge and to avoid any form of abandonment or forsakenness. Um, in fact, it's kind of interesting to me is that we actually develop comprehensive emotional protective strategies and or armor um, to avoid any form of abandonment or forsakenness. Um, and it's interesting to me, while at the same time, we cycle through these questions of, do you really want me? Am I really good enough? And will you ever forsake me? Those are the questions that we deal with. Like, that's life. And we still, and again, the older we get, it never goes away. It never goes away. We just become better adjusted or adapted to somehow cloak it and veil it. When in reality, it's interesting to me that buried beneath Our education, our sophistication, our laughter, our accomplishments really is a wounded orphan spirit. Where we just, we sense something's not quite right in our soul, but we're not going to walk around necessarily um, just throwing all of our emotions there for the world to see. Um, the kind of that's what TikTok is all about. But at the end of the day, we try to comprehensively create systems to avoid ever having to go down that path. At the very core of who we are is this sense of like, I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be forgotten. I don't want to be forsaken. And this is exactly what Jesus was experiencing on the cross and aligning himself with this human experience. It's pretty powerful. Um, I want to put it into Paul's words because, again, I think a better way to really think about this is how does the New Testament writers process and think through what happened to Jesus here on the cross? And Paul the Apostle actually has a lot to say about this. I'm just going to read this little section here in Galatians chapter 3, verses uh, 1, uh, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Jesus has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he was hung on the cross. So I, I imagine Paul the Apostle, he was kind of late to the game. Um, in terms of becoming a follower of Jesus. Uh, but Paul was familiar, obviously, with the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And Paul was also deeply familiar with the ancient historic scriptures, which, uh, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, which I have referenced up there. Paul was familiar with this. And in that, it basically says, curse everyone that hangs upon the tree, which he's going to reference. But I, I know in Paul's mind, he's kind of thinking through this idea of, like, if Jesus is the Messiah, in other words, the Messiah is just another fancy uh, Hebraic word for king. If Jesus truly is the king, that has come to tackle chaos and destruction and death and to 
bring about a brand new life, a brand new way of being human, salvation, the way we describe it. If this is what Jesus intended to do, how can the one who's quote-unquote blessed by God as the Messiah also be quote-unquote cursed by God? It's kind of a conundrum that Paul was trying to process and think through. And what Paul's doing in his deep theological processing, probably not only a lot of ink has been spilled over this, sadly, throughout centuries, a lot of blood has been spilled over this. I'm certain it doesn't please the heart of God. Probably a lot of coffee and tea has been poured out over this. A lot of long walks have been taken to try to make sense of what was going on there on the cross. And this is what Paul's summary was. He says, Jesus rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. As it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree. Through Jesus' act, God has blessed us with every, with all the same spiritual blessings that were promised to Abraham. So what Paul recognizes, that there is a, a direct correlation between Jesus on the cross and some sense a curse is being mounted upon him. Jesus is receiving, accepting this concept of a curse but the curse is de- deeply linked to sin. But this is the conundrum. Jesus never sinned. So what's happening on the cross? This is what we have to think about. Because this is what plays into the bigger statement or line that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It takes us into the very core of like what's happening right here. So we have to think carefully about some of this. I think um, this kind of leads us into like two main things I really want to focus on, and we'll just wrap it up. Number one, I want to take a look at really the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of sin. I think we have to think about this because the idea of a curse, the idea of death, the idea of forsakenness, all of this plays into the, con- the concept of the seriousness of sin, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And then secondly, in, in uh, finality, we'll take, really take a look at the idea of the deliverance of God, like God doing something. God's stepping into sin. So if you want to put it this way, sin is big. It's really big. It's really bad. We'll kind of define what we mean by that in just a moment. But at the end of the day, um, God's grace in his deliverance is far greater than that. So that's the important thing that we need to really consider. So number one, the idea of the sin as being something that's deeply serious. So number one, let's just talk a little bit about what sin is. I'll give you a quick like, little definition just so we can think about this. Again, we know throughout the New Testament there's about four, maybe five different words that, get, um, that have a Greek word associated with the idea of sin. I'm not going to go through all those right now. Um, I think the most common way in which we've all probably heard sin described is just simply missing the mark. Hamartia is the actual Greek word. It's just simply the idea of like comes from archery where you shoot an arrow and you're supposed to hit the bullseye and you don't hit the bullseye. You completely miss the mark. Like that's the big idea. Like as human beings, we have missed the mark collectively as well as individually from what God had intended. So if you think of it this way, God's a designer, he's an architect, he's an artist, his, the purpose of his design and the talos of a person's desi- a designer's design is to uh, create, carry out something, to create something good. But human beings made in God's image, uh, we've drifted from that. We've kind of crafted our own story, our own narrative, our own script to kind of follow. And this kind of plays in the larger concept of sin. So the way I put it up here is sin is a willful, defiant or disloyal breaking away from God and humanity. That's uh, John Stott. Actually, I didn't make that. That was John Stott. So uh, he's a famous, well-known theologian. But he describes it that way. I think it's a great way to think about it. That this is the way sin could be thought about. Now, secondly, I like to think of it this way. That the idea of what does sin bring? Sin brings, number one, this idea of distance. Distance from God. Distance. Uh, we can think of it as, a, as abandonment. Or this, not, not, that, not necessarily that God's abandoning us, but we, by our defiance, 
is abandoning God. It's important, this idea of distance. Like, God is not running from us. It's the exact opposite. We are running from God. God says, here I am. Here's what I've created. Here's my design for living a good life. And we as human beings, we're like, I don't, I don't like that. I want this way. I want this path. I want this thing. I want this forbidden fruit. Whatever it is. So distance oftentimes is created. Secondly, we see that decay begins to take place. Or a degeneration or chaos, if you think of it that way. Something that begins to throw. And again, if you play this out in your life. Now, if you were to just take the idea of sin and put it in the context of relationships... You know, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, roommates, mom, dad, child, whatever. Uh, when sin gets brought into that, it creates complexity. And that complexity can create hurt feelings or offenses. You don't do something that the other person wants. or You do something that causes offense to that. Again, it could be willful. It could be unintentional. At the end of the day, what you have immediately is distance that begins to form between the two of you. I mean, right now, like, I'm not going to call anybody out, but let's say, for example, you're married, you're driving to church. One of the reasons why my wife and I never drive to church on Sunday morning together. We honestly, like, we design it such a way, and we never have issues on Sunday morning, ever. I mean, except for sometimes before we actually leave the house, but not today. But the point that I would make is this, is that we, we, when you have things that happens between each other, you have distance that begins to form. It's an awkward separation. But you also have decay, where that relationship, the, the more it just is allowed to bread or be, breed, it just creates decay and brokenness and destruction. And then ultimately, the final movement of this is death. Death. Something just dies. You know, in the context of a marriage, you call it divorce. Just divorce. That's, what is a divorce? A divorce is the death of a marriage. It's, it's the complete, utter eradication, destruction, decay. It's what decay moves or morphs into, which is just ultimately death. These are the things that sin Defiance, turning away from God, willful, intentional, begins to lead all human beings towards. None of us, none of us are immune from this. And this is the important thing to just really uh, consider and, and contemplate on, is that as human beings, we all have this tendency to try to self-justify, like, who we are and what we did. It's kind of an interesting thing, like, even within any war, every side of a war feels like they are the right ones. They are the ones that has the moral superiority. I guarantee you right now, Putin believes he has moral superiority over in what he's doing. But at the same time, so does NATO and so do the other people that are part of this. Other. Each side has this tendency. And you can go down the Iraq war. You can go down uh, every other war that's ever happened throughout history. It's always the same thing. And those are, those are like macro-level wars. What about minor-level wars with regard to racism and other types of forms of brokenness and chaos within our culture? We have this idea where we just want to self-justify. We become the moral superior person over someone else, and therefore we are justified to create our attack. We're all human beings. We're all like that. We're all subject to that. But here's what I want to suggest. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, uh, theologian, she wrote this. On the cross, Jesus took our place under the dictatorship of sin. Just listen to this real carefully. It's so powerful. This is what she has to say. On the cross, Jesus took our place under the dictatorship of sin. He was condemned by the law and subject to death because he, only he, the perfectly righteous one, could break the hold of these powers and bring us out of our slavery to sin. His human nature absorbed the curse of the law, the sentence that deals death to humans, Romans seven eleven. Then she goes on to say, Jesus allied himself with us in our furthest or farthest extremity. The full weight of our enmity with God, 
fell on him. No wonder he cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His derelict condition was a direct result of his complete identification with us. At this point, this is kind of what scholars and theologians would describe as uh, substitutionary atonement. Jesus did something on our behalf for us. But I want to be really careful because we oftentimes can identify this in more, especially modern times, um, I would say kind of created more of a, a character of this, that it's like divine child abuse. God is taking out his really angry state on Jesus. I want to be really clear. This is not what's happening. New Testament is very clear on this. God was in Christ reconciling us from our sin. What was happening on the cross was a Trinitarian divine rescue operation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit were all collaboratively, collectively working together to rescue us. Jesus had his part. His part was to submit himself as a sin bearer, taking upon himself as a sinless human being all of the consequences, the, the, the end game of where sin takes us. It takes us to all of these things of distance, decay, and death. And it was in that state. Jesus fully allies himself with human beings and says what you and I say all the time, even though we might not put it in those articulate words, my God, my God, where are you? Have you ever felt that? Where are you, God? Where are you in the midst of my pain? Where are you in the midst of the pain in Yemen? Where are you in the midst of bombs dropping in Ukraine? Where are you in the midst of these uh, overflow shelters that are just packed? Where are you in the midst of divine sense of loss? Where are you in the midst of this? And what we know is that Jesus throws himself entirely into the pain that you and I experience. So I just want to say this real quickly. No matter what you think about who God is or what God has done, no matter how much you might feel like he's absent, the one thing, if what I'm suggesting to you is in line with the scripture, which I I truly believe it is, and it's in line with 2,000 years of Christian history, that this is the message, the central message that has been taught over 2,000 years of history over every form of ethnicity within the church on the globe throughout all history, is that Jesus took upon himself our pain, our sin, our guilt in order to give us something in return of his acceptance. Uh, To use the New Testament word uh, of adoption, to bring us into something that we don't deserve. So no matter what you think about God, you may object to what Jesus did. You might find it confusing. You might not even like it. You might not even like God's idea for how to live life. That's fine. But what you cannot do is you cannot look at it and say, God is indifferent towards human suffering and pain. You cannot say that. If you do, you have to prove how that goes against 2,000 years of Christian teaching and scripture analysis and understanding. This is what God's heart is. God's heart is for broken people to bring them into a place of wholeness. So I want to finish on this last little section here in terms of the deliverance of God. And what we see real quickly is on the cross, we see God stepping into the chaos, God taking it upon himself, God letting it do to him in the full degree to which it brings upon us this 
darkness, this death, and this decay. Jesus allows it all to come upon him on the cross. Now, I want to just do a really quick kind of scripture tour, and then I'll finish with some final thoughts, and we'll uh, respond by singing and worship. But uh, Isaiah chapter 53, I'm just going to read through real quickly, um, and then they'll be up on the screen, so please feel free to write them down and read them a little bit later. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6 says this, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, or by his wounds, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, we've gone astray. We have turned to everyone, each his own way. But the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. John chapter 1, verse 29 says this. Jesus, or John said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John recognizes something about the nature of who Jesus is. He says, This Jesus is like the Passover Lamb. That takes away the sin of the world and does something with it, removes it from wherever it was existing at one point, which is the implication as human beings. We are these, uh, these containers of sin. We not only are infected by sin, but we also cause infection. We are also spreading this virus of sin actively throughout our world as agents of uh, the spread. And Jesus takes it upon himself. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 24 to 25 says, He bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds we are healed. You were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Jesus suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, God made Christ who never sinned to be an offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 says this, you received God's spirit. This is probably the most powerful one. You received God's spirit when you were adopted as his own. Now we cry out to him, Abba, Father. What I want you to think about is this, to take away, uh, give a quick like little summary of everything that we just read. This is what God does. This is what, if you want to use the big New Testament word, just salvation. This is what salvation looks like. If you're looking for other handles or words to think about, like what is salvation? That's a big word. If you're looking for better ways to articulate and think about this, this is exactly what salvation is. Salvation is they're actually all derived from the verses that we just read. Salvation is being healed. Salvation is uh Jesus taking away our sin, it's being healed, it's returning home. Have you ever been on a long journey and you're just like, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry for home. I just want to be in my chair where I'm safe, where I'm in my own space, where I feel safe, where I'm no longer feeling a sense of vulnerability being out in the exposure. It's about returning home. It's about being brought near to God. It's being made fully alive in the spirit, being made right with God. It's about being rescued. And ultimately it's about being adopted. And this is what we see in the cross is that Jesus is absorbing, taking into himself your and my consequences. That sense of distance and decay and death. And in exchange gives to us this menu of items, as well as many, many more throughout the New Testament. But this is what the heart of the message of the gospel has always been from the very beginning. So in the, I mean, honestly, like, there's no other narrative or message in the world that even comes close to this. Brothers and sisters, 
Again, you have to think through this carefully, maybe in some cases critically. And I realize for some of you, maybe you were brought up knowing about God. I, I do not believe that I shared anything or dropped any bit of new information to any of you. I don't think any of you are going to walk away but like, I didn't know any of this. If anything, most of you are going to be like, I knew this, I heard this, but maybe this is kind of a new way of hearing. And that's dangerous. And then I'll say why. Because what ends up happening is we become overly familiar with it. And my hope would be that as we hear this today, the Holy Spirit would just spark something alive and new and fresh and awaken us in a new way of recognizing that this is what Jesus has done for us. And I'm just telling you, there's no other place on planet Earth that you will find any type of benefits that will come to us like this. What are the contexts will you find this? You, you, you don't get this. In a yoga class, you don't get this by joining up and becoming a social justice warrior. You don't get this by joining the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. You don't get this in any context, ever, in any place on this planet. The only place that we will find this degree of acceptance and love and forgiveness and this idea of being made right is through Jesus. Trace back all the way to the cross and his cry, dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is what we're invited into consider. I want to finish with a little video clip, and I'm hoping, keeping my fingers crossed, that it will work. And uh, I'm going to have Dan come on up, and we're just going to wrap it up with some time of worship and communion. So hopefully the video clip will play. But this is about an adoption. Nothing grimy, but it's, yeah, it's another gift. Why don't you carefully open it up? Here we go. I want you to read it. I'm going to be adopted? We love these. Okay, you can watch the rest of it on YouTube. But what I, just, I want to finish with this thought of when you hear what God has done for you, my hope would be that there would be some form, some form of acknowledgement and acceptance and embrace that this is what it's all about. God's saying, I've adopted you. You're no longer estranged. You're no longer alienated. You are not abandoned. You're not forsaken in this world. And I realize for some of us, that's really hard because we, we've, we've framed and crafted the sum total of our lives to somehow avoid any form of feeling abandoned. I think in a lot of ways, it's one of the reasons why for many that have led to a deep sense of just even sexual brokenness where it kind of is framed upon this idea of like, maybe if I give my body to this other person, they won't leave me. And they do leave you. And now you feel, I've given myself, I've given everything to them. And they didn't keep me. They threw me out. They left me. So one of the reasons why I think sometimes even dudes kind of walk around with this sense of bravado, this sense of like, Arrogance, spread your wings, strut around as if you are some powerful human being because you know you are not. But you know that if you somehow let the guard down, you'll be found out and you'll be abandoned. And what I'm suggesting to you 
is that the sum total, the heart of the gospel, is that in spite of how messed up, broken, sinful you are, and how much you've contributed to that, how much you've even been broken by someone else's sin upon you, no matter how much you feel as if you just deserve to be tossed out, forsaken, the gospel is that God loves you. The cross is God's deep, resounding declaration to you over and over and over again. I want you. I'm inviting you to come draw near. I love you. And as we wrap it up right now, what I want to do is I want to invite you to just respond to what God has for you. So I'd love for us to just stand. And as we do this, what I would love for us is to think about is for some of us, this idea of like a, an orphan spirit, that's what you know, that's what you felt, that's what you've sensed. I, what if this morning God says, I want to take away that orphan spirit from you? It doesn't belong to you anymore. You've been given the spirit of adoption. You belong to me. You're fully, you belong to me. And I love you. I've proved myself to you. What if right now, this moment, God says, I want to deliver you from all of those false pretenses, all of the bravado, all of the strut, all of the other narcissistic things that we are oftentimes just trying to embrace and hold on to somehow so that we will at least reassure our souls we're not forgotten. By the way, all of that is extremely exhausting. And anxiety producing. And what if this morning you heard in a new way Jesus saying, all of you who are exhausted and filled with anxiety, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And I'll give you life. What if this morning, this moment right now, God is wanting to bring you into something brand new like you've never experienced before? Something we would simply describe as eternal life. So right now, just if I want to invite you just to maybe raise your hands in a posture of, God, I am a child before you, and I want all that you have. And I want to pray over you right now that God would bring forth a freshness of life over you. And then we will respond by partaking of communion. You can do so by coming to the front, receiving it. Again, go down the middle aisles and go out towards the side. And then we'll partake of communion together and wrap it up. But why don't you lift out your hands? I want to pray over us right now as we just move into a moment of worship. God, I right now pray for my, my friends, my brothers and sisters, people that are maybe here this morning that have never really even devoted themselves to you, but they know they felt the ache and the loneliness, and the pain, and the sorrow, and the exhaustion, and anxiety of this world. And right now, Jesus, you are inviting them to trust you. And I just pray, God, that you would just cause that orphan spirit, that orphan heart, to be replaced with a deep assurance of our acceptance and our adoption by you. God, thank you for what you're doing here right now. As we sing right now, as we lift up our voices, uh, I, I think it's so important to just realize, for some of you, 
Like, God wants to do business with us. And I, and I mean in the sense of, like, actually us pressing into him and praying. And we have people up at that front. I'm up here. I would love to pray with you. Anything that's going on in your life, any form or sense where you're just wanting to press into God and maybe even have some of these things rewired in your heart. Maybe you've been brought up knowing about who God is. And right now, you just kind of your approach is more of just a cynical approach of just like, yeah, I've done that. I've been there. I've been down that path before. It's never really done much. And maybe somewhere in your heart, there's this little tiny mustard seed of just faith that says, but I want it to be true. I want it to be true. That little segment is something that God's going to take and bring forth a forest of beauty from it. So I want to invite you to take that step. In a lot of ways, there is a response that you have to step into. There's nothing magic that's going to happen. I can't promise you that you're going to walk away of some sort of radical encounter with God. But I can promise you that that first step of saying, I'm just going to do what I need to do to ask others to pray for me, to bring my struggle, my challenge, my hardship to a place where it's just at least brought to the light and where then we can now begin to trust God to do something fresh and new right now. I want to invite you into that.